Let's now turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, the fourth chapter, and we'll be looking at the first 20 verses, Lord willing, this morning. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Let us now bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are humbled under the authority of the Word of God. We pray that we will be more humbled yet as we hear the Word read this morning and expounded. Give to us ears that hear, for only grace can do that. And for those who may be here who are strangers to the grace of God in Christ, we would ask that they would be given hearts to hear. For it is all of grace, and this text certainly makes that clear and plain. And how thankful we are that grace has been shown to us, opening our hearts, granting to us life. When once we were dead in our trespasses and sins, enabling us by granting us saving faith to embrace Jesus Christ, proclaimed and preached freely. But Father, we know that only those who have been moved by the Spirit of God and effectually call can receive that word of promise. But it is the promise held out to all who believe, and we pray that this morning we all will believe, and that no one will leave this place an unbeliever but having trusted in Christ, being done with autonomy and with self, and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. O Lord, please accomplish this, for we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, our mediator. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, 
so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. It is the best of news that Christ came and died for sinners and rose from the dead to save us from our sins. Since the gospel is good news, why do people respond to its message in different ways? We've already seen that as Jesus Christ himself preaches the gospel of the kingdom, that there are those who have believed and there are those who want to kill him. The parable of the sower was designed by our Lord to answer the questions, how do sinners respond to the gospel? That is to say, in what various ways? And why do sinners respond differently to the good news when it is preached and proclaimed? So the first thing we see when we come to chapter 4 here and look at this parable is the parable itself in verses 3 through 9. And notice that Jesus begins with a call to attention. Now this is unique in Mark's gospel here in verse 3. Listen, a sower went out to sow. And this is one of those things that probably Peter would have preached that Mark would have picked up on and he includes in his gospel. Peter was there, he heard it. But Jesus wants us as well to listen to what he says in his word this morning. And then, of course, he deals with typical farming methods that would have been very familiar to everyone in that day. The seed was scattered and then plowed under. But he focuses on what happened to the seed in the soils. First, it never started. It was just taken up by birds. Second, seeds started but died. It was scorched by the sun. And then third, it survived, but it could not produce because it was choked out by weeds. And then, lastly, there was fruit from seed falling in good soil. Hence, the parable of the sower is sometimes called the parable of the soils. Now, in chapter 4, verse 9, as he has explained the parable, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. Ponder this. 
Think upon it. Meditate on it. Dwell on it. The parable is like a piece of hard candy. You have to just kind of turn it around in your mouth. It takes time to dissolve. There is more here than is perceived immediately. It takes a spiritual nature to understand this. And here we learn a fundamental truth. And that fundamental truth is that divine light is indispensable to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And right in the midst of this, even before explaining the parable's meaning, Jesus instructs about the mystery of the kingdom of God. And that's the second thing we see, the mystery of the kingdom of God. And it's best captured perhaps by using the word secret, the secret of the kingdom of God. So in verses 10 and the first part of verse 11, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, what is that secret? Well, it's not so much what is that secret, but it's Christ who is the secret, who is revealed. The secret is that the Son of God has come. Why is it secret? Because it is a matter of divine revelation. Because the Lord of heaven and earth came, but it was not obvious. He came as man, and we have seen how he reveals himself and conceals himself in various places already in Mark's gospel. He humbled himself and hid his divine majesty. He became little, though he fills the universe. What is weaker than man? And I remember that statement of Martin Luther when he said, to behold humility, to behold humility is to look upon the face of God. And my mouth is truly agape when I think that God, the sovereign of the universe, humbled himself and came into this world and became man. And so we have majestic humility and we have humble majesty God became man. Now, to know this, I'm not saying simply to know about it. I'm not saying simply to be able to repeat the facts regarding it. But to know this, and this is Jesus' point, to know this in the heart, to receive Christ by faith, we must experience a divine work of grace. There must be knowledge of the kingdom that is given by God. And so he says in verse 11, those outside, to those outside, everything is in parables. Now notice in verse 11, he says, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. So there are those who are outside who have not received grace. There are those to whom it has been given to receive the truth of the parables, the secret of the kingdom, who is Christ himself. Knowing Christ, the seeker of the kingdom, is only perceived by faith, which itself is a gift of God. It's his grace. And that God would come down is so opposed to human insight that it requires God's supernatural work to bring our hearts to see it, understand it, and to realize how it is essential for our salvation from sin. Do you know this? Do you understand this with the hearing that comes here in the heart by grace? To know this is God's special gift of salvation. It is what we call effectual calling. 
the work of God the Father through the Holy Spirit drawing to himself the lost out of darkness into light, drawing those whose hearts are hardened in sin out of that hard-heartedness, granting to them hearts of flesh, replacing hearts of stone. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Herman Hooksema uses these descriptive words regarding effectual calling. I've always found it very helpful. Uh, He uses these four words, contrition, recognition, longing, and appropriation. And by contrition, he doesn't simply mean contrition for sin, though certainly that will be there, but he means a true sorrow after God, that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts a conviction of his love for me that draws me to himself. By recognition, it's the Holy Spirit's work within the heart where the sinner beholds Christ as the God of his salvation and my only righteousness of whom there is no other. The Lord does not leave us in despair over our sins, but he shows us Christ in his fullness when he calls us by his grace. And then there's this longing, this aspiration to know God, to fellowship with God, to commune with the God whom I once hated. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. That's longing. And there is then appropriation. So there's contrition, recognition, longing, and appropriation, which essentially means the assurance that this Savior proclaimed and preached and held out is my Savior. He's my Savior from sin. And so there is appropriation. God is there presenting that gospel for me. I hear it as for me. You must hear it as for yourself. I love the Heidelberg Catechism for many, many reasons. It's sound, it's solid, it's theological, it's warm, it's pastoral. And in number 21 of the Heidelberg, there is the question about what true saving faith is all about. And the answer given in the Heidelberg in 21 is true faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Spirit works by the gospel in my heart, that not only others, but to me also remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merit. I want the people of God here to be certain. I want the ministry that, that is, is proclaimed by the pastors here to be used to the Spirit of God to produce the certainty of faith in the hearts and lives of the people of God so that you have this assured confidence that not only to others but to me also this remission of sin belongs. Well, We saw that in the life of George, if you were here for the service just recently, in which we, I was just astounded on that day in the hospital when he was able to get out a sentence that confessed his faith so strongly 
And he said, in relation to the text that I had just read to him from the book of Hebrews, I am confident. I want that for all of the people of God here. I want you to be confident. I want you to be sure. That's normal Christian living. Now, the secret of the kingdom of God becomes known by the effectual operation of the Holy Spirit. You know, I've never heard a Christian pray something like this, Lord, you held out the gospel to me, and when I became good enough, I opened the door for you to come in. And I sovereignly let you in on my own, and it was my doing, for I decided to let you show grace to me. I've never heard a Christian pray that. I've heard theology taught like that. It's false theology. But I've never heard a Christian on his knees pray like that. No, no. Every Christian on his knees says, Lord, you saved me by grace and by grace alone. It was grace in the beginning, grace in the continuing. It will be grace that will bring us home. Because as John Calvin put it in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, the preaching of the gospel streams forth from the wellspring of election, and God is going to draw his people to himself. Now that leads us to a a part of the parable that people have difficulty with. And the third thing we see, the parable's twofold effect. The twofold effect of the preaching of the parables of Jesus as he preached, especially with scribes and Pharisees around that had hard hearts toward him, the twofold effect is to reveal and to veil. To reveal and to veil. And quite frankly, I, I grow weary of commentators and hearing sometimes even preachers and others dance around what Jesus is saying so clearly in this passage. And I'm called as his ambassador to preach what's here. And so read verses 11 and 12. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, that little so that is the Greek word hina, which means here's the purpose. It's a purpose. The purpose is this, that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So there is this veiling that is a part of the ministry of Jesus and frankly the part of of any minister's preaching today as well. Mark puts this in terms that lead us simply to bow before the Lord. God is God. God is sovereign. He knows and understands these things. If I do not, then I simply say, Lord, I, I submit to the teaching of Scripture. Here we find his eternal decree. Here we have his sovereign providence. And he cites that passage that we read this morning from Isaiah chapter 6 that Pastor McNeil read. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted, lifted up, and his train filled the temple where he was sitting, and the, the seraphim veiled their faces and cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook, and he cried out, woe is me, and he says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, he sees then the King high and lifted up. By the way, In John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 41, I think it is, it tells us that this was a pre-incarnate Christophany. This is Christ, whom he saw, who is Jehovah, sitting on this throne. After this, what happens? Well, he heard a voice of the Lord saying, 
whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then he says, here am I, Lord. Uh, send me. And so God says, go. And here's your ministry, Isaiah. Keep on hearing. This is what you're to preach. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but you do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And so he goes and he does that. How long do I do it? Well, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses without people and the land is desolate. That's the kind of ministry he gave to Isaiah. That's what he was to preach. That would be the result of his preaching. And Jesus is quoting that verse, that section of Isaiah 6. You want to know the reason for parables? Well, I'll tell you. There are some who are outside and they're going to remain outside unless called by grace. There are those who are called by grace that will understand and they will not understand the parable. Oh, they may be able to tell you in external ways about the parable, but they will not perceive with their hearts. They will not see with spiritual eyes because they do not have hearts and eyes that can see. And so there's a curse function serving further to harden the hearts of some hard-hearted sinners. Used in the hands of the sovereign God, the parables serve the dual purpose of simultaneously revealing and concealing. And what is applied especially to the Pharisees and the scribes and the hard-hearted that are rejecting the word of Christ brings a more general warning, undoubtedly to someone here today, whose heart is hard or hardening against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unless God intervene, hardening leads to more hardening. As Calvin put it, they must endure the blame of their own blindness and hardness. So this illustrates the principle, the awe-inspiring principle, that sin is the punishment of sin. Someone says, Pastor, you say, I'll be judged. I just go on the way I've always gone. I, you don't, you're so blind you don't see. You're deeper and deeper and deeper in sin, and that sin is the punishment of sin that will lead to the judgment on the last day. So let there be no mistake. That's why Jesus used the parables. It's not because he wanted to use stories because people like stories and he wanted them to understand better. It's because he actually is distinguishing outsiders from those who are called by grace, grace alone. True preaching often brings further veiling rather than clear perception of revelation. And for such outsiders, that's not my word. That's Jesus' word in verse 11. He's not inclusive. For such outsiders, everything remains a dim parable, a riddle. And unless God in sovereign grace saves, it will not happen. What a grace, what a gift of grace to be given the knowledge of the secret of the kingdom of God, to understand who Jesus is and why he came and to believe in him for your salvation. Do you understand that's grace? You didn't do that. You could never have done that. Not one of us deserves salvation. And God would have been perfectly just had he allowed every sinner to perish in his sins. He didn't have to save anyone. But he does, and it's all of grace. And I say again, what a gift to have been given the knowledge of the secret of the kingdom, to have been given hearts for Christ, to have been regenerated, to have been converted, 
And we sing it often in one of our hymns, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Isn't it true? Why me, Lord? I was no more deserving than another. I was just as hell-deserving as another. But I was saved while someone else is allowed to go on in his sin. Well, that leads us to the fourth thing we see, Jesus' explanation of the parable. And he says in verse 13, essentially, this parable is going to be the key to understanding the parables. So you need to understand the things that we're saying to you this morning because it will help you to understand all of the kingdom parables that will come. So it's about the kingdom, the sower, the fruitfulness of the gospel. The sower, of course, is the Lord who casts seed like, uh, like he's doing today through the preaching of the gospel. It's he who actually is sowing the seed. His authoritative word into the soil, the hearts of hearers in the present age. And this he uses all of us who speak a word for Christ, and he uses especially ministers of the word of God, the preaching ministry. And that's why Satan does all he can to weaken the place of preaching in the church and in the world. And as he expounds this parable, what he wants to underscore in particular is that there are obstacles to fruitfulness when the word of God is preached. And those obstacles are the various kinds of soil, that is, the various kinds of hearts that hear the message. Some people hear the word on one level, but Satan comes and takes it away. They become so indifferent that they allow some distraction of Satan to take away the seed of the Word of God. Others are ecstatic about the gospel at first, but look at verse 17, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately they fall away. So they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They last only a short time, and when trouble or persecution comes, they just quickly fall away. Now, Mark was probably written in a time of persecution. This would have spoken to many a, many a believer who would hear this. And he uses the word here, he uses a verb, but from the noun scandalon, scandal, in verse 17 bringing to mind a bait trap. That's what a scandal, scandalon was, a bait trap. Enticement, temptation, that is to say, away from the word. Trouble comes, persecution comes, they have no root, as Hendrickson put it, no inner conviction. They fail to consider that true discipleship implies self-surrender, self-denial, sacrifice, service, and suffering. They ignore the fact that it is the way of the cross that leads home. So do you understand this in your heart? Where do your deepest commitments lie? When temptation comes, even when you find it difficult, are you able to say, I know where my deepest commitments are? But still others are preoccupied with the world. Look at verses 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns, 
They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So these are hearts that are so preoccupied with the things of this world, this world system, with constant cares and anxiety that leads them away from the gospel rather than to God, deceitfulness of wealth and other things that just choke out the Word of God. Hendrickson, I mentioned a moment ago, listen to this, such a heart is preoccupied It has no room for calm and earnest meditation on the Word of God. Should any such serious study and reflection nevertheless attempt to gain entrance, it would be immediately choked off. Constant anxiety about worldly affairs fill the mind and the heart with dark foreboding. When this person is poor, he deceives himself into thinking that if he were only rich, he would be happy. When he's rich, he deludes himself into imagining that if he were still only richer, he would be fully satisfied as if material riches could, under any circumstance, guarantee contentment. I think that certainly in, in our consumerism, this is a great warning. But there are other ways in which anxieties of the world can displace the Word of God in our hearts. So many, I don't have to tell you what they may be. But I ask this question, are we taking these descriptions to heart. Do you find yourself in one of these descriptions? Or even as Christians, do we find too much of this sort of thing characterizing our hearts and characterizing our lives? Because I need to become more and more lost in myself so that I recognize more and more that I'm only saved in Him. That should be the result of cares, distractions, and so forth that come from the world, driving me away from self and and an awareness of His grace to me in Christ. So, are we willing to say, what kind of soil, Lord, is my heart? Show me my heart. And if you really mean that, only grace can produce even the question. Am I one of those who, when Jesus the Son presses His claims, it all remains an enigma to me? It's just veiled? Or can I say, once worship and the Word were meaningless to me despite exposure, and then the Lord changed my heart and converted me, and it was the work of sovereign grace alone, to God be the glory. These soils also teach us that perseverance in the faith is the mark of a true Christian. And I'm afraid we tend to think more in terms of meteors. You know, they, they flash they're, they're shiny, they're bright, they sparkle, but they burn up in the earth's atmosphere. And so there are many who profess faith in Christ and they love the things that sparkle. They don't like things that are substantive and they love the things that flash, the things that are new, the fads that enter into the church. They love these sorts of things, but they just burn up in the atmosphere of the world system. But there's one other thing that he says that is of great encouragement to us. And that's the fifth and final thing, the promise of the future. The response produced by grace. And that response is found in verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who heard the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold.
So the response produced by grace, hearts changed by the plow of the gospel in the hand of the Holy Spirit, the seed goes deep, it takes root, it grows, it lasts. Not because by nature my soil is better than someone else's soil, but because the Holy Spirit does this in our lives. You know, there's an emphasis, go back and read this later. There's an emphasis in this parable on hearing, hearing. When you say to your child, do you hear me? The test is in the response. And so when you hear this parable and it says, do you hear this? Again, the test is in the response. For now the judgment is delayed, you see. The Lord is scattering his seed, his word, in all kinds of soil. He scatters it in the field far and wide. He draws the dragnet in the water, says another parable. His work is now like that. And here is our encouragement. The word is now bearing fruit, and the cumulative effect will be a bumper crop at the end of the age when Jesus comes again. And I've often wondered if the Lord might have had the passage in Isaiah chapter 9 in mind, in which the Lord, in verse 13, speaks of the Messiah harvester who would come. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that sows seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. The idea here is that the Messiah who would come is the harvester. No sooner does does the the seed go in the ground than it sprouts up, and and there's this great vine of grapes, and he's he's almost feverishly putting it into, into his basket. It, it, it goes in, the seed goes in, there it sprouts, there it comes, and he's gathering. You see, it's a bumper crop that the Messiah will have when he comes again. And though we are responsible to receive the word, I think that every true Christian heart must confess the reception of the word was not up to me. I was responsible to receive it, but I could not receive it All of us were once outsiders, were we not? Our hearts, all of our hearts, were at one time bad soil. Isn't that true? I was not born with good soil and someone else born with good soil. There's original sin. We were all bad soil. It's all of grace. And so the kingdom of God is broken into this world. And just as seed is scattered on good soil, he is now spreading his gospel, working in hearts, and golden seed is being scattered by the rhythmic sowing of the the Son of God, his sovereign hand, from this endless sack of seed and the crop that's anticipated. There will be before the throne of the Lamb worshiping him a number that no man can count who have been saved by the grace of God. And the stress is not on the enormity of those who do not receive the word, but on the enormity 
of those who do, what is produced in their lives, and the production at the end of the age. Another passage that comes to mind as we close is Isaiah 55. I wonder if some of you were thinking of it. In verses 10 and 11, thinking of the Lord himself being the ultimate sower, using his ministers, using your voice and your witness, and the seed is being sown all around, but the Lord ultimately is the one who is doing this. He says in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. And so in this time of the world in which sometimes we feel so discouraged as Christians and we see such little result, God is saving his people. His word is accomplishing his purpose. Whether that word is veiling in his sovereignty or whether that word is blessed by the Spirit of God to bear saving fruit, God is accomplishing his purpose through his word. And here in this word is your hope. And here in this word is recorded your Savior and your salvation. And here in this word is your security and certainty in the midst of all of the supposed uncertainties of the world. Here is your blessedness in this life. And here in this word is revealed your eternal beatitude your eternal blessedness. It's all here in the Word of God. Despised, put down, hyper-criticized, but this Word remains. And it is going to accomplish God's purpose in this world. And it is. A sower went forth to sow. There's a lot in that, isn't there? A lot. A sower went forth to sow, and people of God, that seed, his word, has taken permanent root in your heart. Will you not, out of gratitude, praise his name? That that word has taken root, and that it will blossom into great and wonderful and ripe fruit for eternity to come. Amen and amen.